Hi there, Glocal Citizens. It's Florence Adu, your host for the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around doing something in the world. This week, I am visiting with the founder of Snacks of Africa. And Snacks of Africa is a food processing, proudly Ghanaian food processing company based here in Accra, Ghana. And they're one of my favorite snacks. And once you taste them, they'll be yours as well. I'd like to say welcome to Stacy Anyame. Stacy, welcome. Thank you, Florence. Thank you for having me. Thank you. you. And did I say your name correctly? I sometimes get a little bit off. No, it's actually Enyam. Enyam. Ah, Stacey. Yes. Enyam. Okay. Okay. So this is a great segue into tell us, you telling us more about yourself. So tell us more. Where are you from? Where's your name from? Where are you local? And besides being the founder of Snacks of Africa, what is your craft? Okay. Well, I am originally Ghanaian. Both my parents are Ghanaian, but I was born and raised in New York. So I'm a New Yorker through and through and currently based in Accra. So that's where I'm local. Okay. My craft is entrepreneurship, building enterprise, growing things. I like the idea of starting something and growing it. And so I'm doing that with Snacks of Africa and I hope to do that many times over. Oh, okay. So you're local here now in Accra. And I think you mentioned you you grew up in New York? I did. I okay. did. Okay. The Bronx. I was raised in the Bronx. Okay. So shout out to BX. Shout out to BX. Um, <laughs> yes. So I grew up in the Bronx, went to school in the Bronx, New York, basically through and through. At university, I went upstate New York, SUNY Albany. And then after that, I started my career in sort of the banking industry, worked there for a few years before I decided to sort of expand my experience globally. So what was it about banking that attracted you? I was in a program called Inroads. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was in Inroads. I was in Inroads. And I think when I applied, to be honest, I wasn't gun-ho set on banking itself. I think I just sort of ended up in it. And so I did inroads and I think my first sort of internship was in the commercial cards division, sorry, mm. the consumer cards division. Mm-hmm. And it was okay, but I just felt like something was missing. And so I told my, you know, how in inroads, everyone has a counselor that kind of matches you mm-hmm. to a certain job. And I said to her, I said, I want to change my internship. I, I don't want to work here again next summer. She's like, what? Like, you can't do that. I said, well, no, I want to do something different. She's like, well, what do you want to do? I said, I want something that merges marketing and finance together. Mm. Um, that was all I had, but that's like something, that's what I felt like I needed to do. And she said, okay, well, you know, you're going to have to give up this internship if, and then apply for a new one. And I said, that's fine. Let's just do it. And then I did it and I was matched to the corporate banking division, but within the corporate banking division, there was a sort of a product management um, arm. Mm. It actually worked out perfectly because I viewed it, you know, product management, if you think about brand management or mm-hmm. even product development, it kind of 
combines the sales, the marketing operations, so much more than sales and marketing, but it had that varied experience that I think I was trying to get at when I told them I wanted to combine marketing and sales, right? Marketing and finance together. So it was actually a great fit for me. So that internship turned into a full-time position. So, you know, I was on the product management team, which I loved. I got to get involved with product development, which was very interesting to me. Got involved obviously responsible for a PL, sat on a global product team. So we got to interact with different countries. You know, the organization that I was with is a global organization. So we had offices in virtually every country. So overall it was it was it was a fun experience. And I think I really got the opportunity to really, you know, explore different interests while working. So it was still, you know, banking. So it's not as I guess creative or anything like that. But for me, it worked out very well because it gave me the opportunity to kind of have the experience of, let's say, brand management. Because just to take a step back, my dream was actually to work for a Coca-Cola. Oh, That was what I wanted to do. I wanted to work for Coca-Cola. I was like, I I want to work for Mm Coca-Cola. And that didn't work out. But working within the product management division of a bank, you know, there were still some parallels. Um, Obviously not to the same extent, but, you know, some of the core Uh, was the same. So I ended up really enjoying that role and that opportunity. Uh So just for our listeners, Inroads is a national internship program that starts, uh, doesn't it start your freshman year in high school? At university, I joined when I was in probably a sophomore. I think I joined when I was a sophomore in college. But it does start in high school. People were in the program during high school. I just was not. Right. Because my cousins, they all did it and they started in high school. They didn't really do it in university, but yeah, right, exactly. But so it's an internship program that places people of color primarily into upwardly mobile types of industries where we're not really represented. Right. That's generally the idea. Right. So we'll, we'll put that in the show notes just so people kind of get a sense of what that exactly is. And so I'm curious about Coca-Cola uh-huh. because Coca-Cola really... I mean, they're excellent marketers. So is that what attracted you to wanting to be in that sector or in that work for them? To be honest, at the time, it wasn't that I thought they were great marketers. I didn't stand outside of it and say, oh, wow, they're so great at marketing. I just connected with the brand. I absolutely loved Coca-Cola. So yes, they were great marketers, but I didn't even think of them as marketers. I just thought, okay, I love this brand. So they were effectively marketing to me. And I think I'm not an easy customer to market to, but they, I always connect with their, their commercials and their adverts. I, I just really, there was something about the messaging in the commercials that I just really loved. And I said, this is a company I want to work for. I didn't know anyone that worked there. I barely even knew they were based in Atlanta. I just knew, okay, this is the type of company I would want to work for. Right. You you were happy to have a Coke and a smile. Right. <laughs> Basically, it was very simple. It was very simple. <laughs> right. Exactly. So and that's what okay. good marketing can do. That's exactly what yes. good marketing can do. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So you grew up in New York. Now you're in Accra. So how did you make the jump from banking to come now living in Accra? Okay. So I knew I wanted to live in Ghana eventually. I said that to myself that I wanted to spend time in Ghana. I didn't grow up here, but I knew I wanted to live here at some point in my life. When Uh I was um, in banking, there was an opportunity for an international rotation. 
which I absolutely applied for because for me, I wanted international experience. And I was, you know, because I had international experience sort of not directly, but sort of indirectly within my role, because I focused on Latin America, the Latin American market uh, at the time, I wanted to have the actual on the ground experience in a developing market. And so I was, I applied for the rotation. So, so for the international assignment and I was selected and I was very clear that I wanted it to be a developing market because, you know, with that company, the, the typical was always London or Hong Kong. And I said, no, at least to be. Right. I wanted, I would have liked it to be Ghana, but we didn't really have much going on in Ghana. Mm-hmm. And so we decided to start in South Africa. And so okay. I relocated to South Africa for a couple of years. After that was completed and I moved back to New York, once I got back to New York, I just realized that there was a draw to go back to the continent. New York just mm-hmm. didn't seem the same to me at all anymore. And, mm-hmm. you know, I just decided it was even a difficult readjustment, to be honest. It was difficult to readjust back mm-hmm. to the life in New York after living in South Africa, because the quality of life in South Africa at the time was great. And so I said, I'm, I'm not, I'm going to move back to the continent, but this time I'm going to make the move to Ghana. I've always said I wanted to move to Ghana and, and now's the time. So I just sort of kind of set out on to to move to Ghana. So I just started kind of figuring trying to figure out a way how, of of getting there and trying to find an opportunity to work there. And here I am. <laughs> okay. So then most of my guests have some story about how how they did it. But so you decided you wanted to come, but how did you actually say, this is when I'm packing all my bags? Did you pack all your bags and just come and sit and stay because you had a family house and could do that? Or how did the mechanics of it all work? Okay. I did not have a family house. So my family I don't have family in Accra. I didn't have any direct family in Accra. Um, And my family, my extended family sort of lives in the Western region. So that wasn't an option. What I did was I looked for a job, really. So what I would do was I just um, spent a lot of time trying to pour through my network, see who do I know that knows anyone that lives in Ghana that I can speak with to explore opportunities to work there. And so initially I took a leave of absence with my previous company and I just started looking. I started looking, I would go to different events, you know, you know, around the time uh, there was the, you know, African business forum at mm. some of the Ivy League schools for the MBA programs. They, they, they were, wow. there were a few of those. So I know Columbia had one. I think NYU had one. So I attended those events to really start to network and try to find people who, who I could connect with that could connect me with opportunities. And there was a particular company that I was drawn to uh, called Acumen Fund because they were doing a lot of work around impact. And I said, okay, this is something that I'd love to do. They were opening a West Africa office. So part of the work that I was doing was really to try to find different opportunities, but then also try to see if I can connect with people who knew anyone at that particular company, because I knew they were hiring and I had already applied, but you know, with work and with a career, you need to network. So yeah. So that was my process. So anyone who I could connect with, I, I did. And I finally found someone that connected me with the person who was hiring for, for, for Acumen. And, and then I started the interview process with them. Um, but in, in the meantime, I was also interviewing with other companies that were, that were based in Accra. And then okay. once I found the opportunity, 
then I made the move. So after securing the job, I moved here. Okay. Got it. So you, you landed and you worked for Acumen. Yes. Okay. So I landed and worked for Acumen and we were, so I was basically looking at Acumen is a social venture capital firm. So what they do is they invest in businesses that are serving the, what they call the bottom of the pyramid, people who are earning less than $2 a day. Uh, so they invest in those companies, but they invest patient capital. So we were responsible for trying to find opportunities on the continent that serve that purpose that could be invested in mm-hmm. or on, in the West African, not the entire continent, but for West Africa specifically. Okay. Got it. So I noticed you were there for not too long, but in that time, how did you, how did you come to understand impact? Like, and how, and how did that spur you into where you are now? In that time, I learned that there were different definitions and different views of impact. You know, some people feel that impact is only restricted to certain, you know, certain industries or certain socioeconomic positions. And I started to, you know, explore those different ideas of impact because of the role that I was in, you know, and because of the position that Ackman was in, in the overall development stage, overall development sort of industry, you know, we got to interact with a lot of different people from different types of organizations that still all focus on impact in their own way. So it was great for me to really explore, you know, what people are doing along the lines of impact and showed me what the spectrum really looked like. Um, And for me, yeah. So for me, I feel that you know, impact, it doesn't have to be as, uh, what's the word, restrictive. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, impact, uh, you know, it's not necessarily about the volume of people. I think if you can make impact within a small number of people, that can always be expanded, you know, because you know, especially with a place like Ghana and how so community driven we are, you can make an impact amongst, let's say, 100 farmers, you right. can triple their income, quadruple their income, and that could take them and whoever they also take along with them much further than only increasing, you know, the incomes of a thousand farmers by, let's say, 10 or 20 percent. So for me, I think, you know, smaller numbers can be more manageable and can have a far greater impact in alleviating poverty and moving people along the socioeconomic ladder, if you will. Whereas some people might feel that impact has to be with, you know, 10,000 farms at a time, or they might feel like impact has to be eight, giving away donor funds or free money. Other people might say impact is infrastructure, right? You need infrastructure in order for an economy to grow. So they're just, it was a good experience in that it really broadened my perspective of what impact can be. And there's no one specific definition of that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess it's in the, in the eyes of the, the capital, ultimately, right? right? Yeah. Right, right, exactly. Got it. Okay, so let's take a slight turn to some context around where you are. And this is where I ask my guests, what is your global speech? We want to hear what you hear. So I asked you to share a word, a phrase, or a saying that is a meaningful part of your local experience and why or how you came to value this as global speak. Okay. Well, my favorite phrase here in Ghana is happy yourself. I don't know if you've heard that phrase before. Oh, yeah, I have. Yeah. Have you heard that one? Yeah. Yeah. 
so that's my favorite. So it's a sort of a slang term and it basically says, it's basically live your life, live your best yes. life. And, you know, for me, I just, just love the idea that, you know, it's just, you have control to, to make yourself happy. And so do whatever you need to do to make yourself feel that way. And so whenever I hear someone that says, oh, happy yourself, or you're enjoying yourself. It's very endearing when we say it to each other here. It's, it's said in a loving way, you know? Right, right. It's it's like showing someone you care, right? Like, oh, happy yourself. Yeah, that's true. That's a lovely one. I like that one. Okay, so we've talked a lot about banking. We talked about acumen. Let's dive into Snacks of Africa. So yes. how did you, so tell us more about that. Tell us tell us your journey for on this entrepreneurship journey. So you've worked for bank. You had an idea of working for companies. You knew you wanted to do something big. You knew you wanted to do it here in Ghana. So tell us, how was Snacks of Africa born? Like you said, I knew I wanted to start a business. I didn't know exactly what it was going to be. But eventually I realized that I had a slight obsession with food. So oh. I said, why don't I just do something food related and start with that? Start with snacks. Because I always, I love snacks. And I always, you know, at the time I would, be a bit frustrated, you know, I, that you could find food snacks from different parts of the world on a U.S. supermarket shelf, but you couldn't find anything from the African continent yeah. on a mainstream supermarket shelf. Yeah, it's true. And so I said, you know yeah, what? We have, there are snacks that we can make that, that can be on these shelves. You know, why does it have to be in only certain shops? You know, so obviously my neighborhood, in the neighborhood shop, you would find there would maybe be an aisle or a certain aisle that had more of the sort of uh, grains and the things that you cook with, but there weren't really any branded products. Like where I could see, okay, this is a very recognizable brand for someone like me that maybe wants something on the go because I would normally buy snacks. Mm-hmm. And so I set out to do something that was snack related. So I started with different products. I even started with cookies. And then, you know, I decided... I wanted to have greater control because in Ghana, just with the way our ecosystem is, it's far easier to control greater parts of the value chain. It's far easier for you to be successful if you have more influence and control across the whole value chain and supply chain. So for instance, if you have stronger control over your, your inputs, the raw material, if you're not necessarily so dependent on somebody else's processing in order for you to produce your product, it makes the reliability and the consistency of the product much better and much stronger. And so because I didn't feel like I had, rely- I had right. that level of control right. with the, the cookies, I, I started looking at what else could I do here that would allow me to have that level of control. And so I started looking at the fruits and the vegetables on the continent, I mean, in Ghana, mm-hmm. I said, okay, mm-hmm. let's start with mm-hmm. coconut. <laughs> coconut is available all year round. That's what I'm going to start with. And I always loved kube cake, which is a, a local snack here made with coconut and basically sugar. It's like, it's almost like a peanut brittle, but it's made with coconut. I loved that. And then we also oh, have okay. these sort mm-hmm. of shredded coconut snacks. And I said, hmm, I think I can make this a, you know, I can enhance this a bit and just, you know, try different things. And so what I did was really just got to work and started experimenting in my kitchen. Mm, so it was okay. a lot of trial and error, a lot of trial and error. Once I felt like it was okay for me, then the next phase was let my mom taste it. Okay. <laughs> if my mom was good with it, then okay, we can go to the public with it and start right. seeing what people thought of it. 
Right. So once she uh, said, okay, she liked it, then I started, you know, letting my friends try it, let different people try it. Okay. Um, and then once I got to a product that I felt like, okay, this is a product that is tasty, this could work. Then I started working on things like the brand, started working on uh, trying to figure out how it was going to get produced on the operational side, started mm-hmm. thinking about the legal aspects, the incorporation of the company, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once I kind of had those key things together, worked on the brand and then started the process of launching. Now, the interesting thing is initially I wasn't going to produce it in Ghana anymore because I was so gun ho on, you know, really having it on the U.S. market. I'm sorry, I wasn't going to sell it in Ghana. I was going to have it sort of mostly in the U.S. market, and then I was going to have it produced in Ghana for me so that I could be in the U.S. pushing it. Uh, And then that didn't work out as well because, as I said, you really have to make sure you have control over your your entire process and outsourcing it just, it just didn't work out. So I ended up having to come back to Ghana. So for a time I left to go back to the States to start, you know, the process of trying to sell it. (laughs) And so I ended up having to come back here to set up my own factory to produce it. And so once I got that done, (laughs) which was also its own process, Mm -hmm. then, you know, I just started selling it. I started selling it at a cafe, T-Bar. Mm-hmm. Tiba, Ditto was like, I need these. My friend Ditto, who's the owner of Tiba, she said, I need these in my shop. Let's yes. please yeah. let me sell it here. And then yeah. she was my first customer. Yeah. And that's where I discovered and that. Yeah. And I was like, these are awesome. And I started buying cases. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm telling you, folks, these are that good. These are good. But now, so now, with that, what's now? Four years, three or four years later? Yeah, three and a half years later. Yeah. Oh now, but now. the process before that was a little long. So three okay. and a half since we launched, but there was at least a year and a half in the sort of the groundwork. Sure, like, sure. Mm-hmm. But this many years later, you can't go into a supermarket or a gas station or a coffee shop and not see Snacks of Africa. So yes. to me, Yes, exactly. Congratulations. <laughs> that is really, and, and you Thank also you. have your international distribution, right? Tell us more about, tell us more about how that happened. Um, the getting it in most places in Ghana or the international distribution? The international. Okay. So with the international, that was through someone who tried the product, who enjoyed it. She already distributes, you know, other products from the, from Ghana into the U.S., mostly in the DMV area. And so I believe I saw her promoting another brand. And I think I messaged someone who I know and said, hey, I'd like her to start, you know, distributing my product. And I think she had already had interest in contacting me anyway, sort of worked out. And and she started distributing it to her customers. She's very, she really liked the product. She really had, you know, the vision to distribute products that are made in Ghana branded products that are made in Ghana to the market that she already serves. And it worked out that way. And so we'll also be launching, you know, our website. We had to revamp it. So we'll start getting that back up and running so that we can sell online via our own website. But for now, by Cayenne, she now distributes our product online and to retailers in the DMV area, as well as Texas, Atlanta, and a few other states. Nice. Mm-hmm. nice. So then just taking a step back, was it a similar kind of process in Ghana getting on all those shelves or how, how did you go about that process? 
No, so the, the, the process in SAFE is a little different because it's really, you know, when you go through a distributor, the distributor, she has those links already. So it's, she's Got buying it. it from me and then she's distributing it into her to her customer okay. base. And then here it was you being your own distributor. Right. So here in Ghana, I directly approach each of the customers or sometimes okay. they approach okay. me. And it's really about selling and marketing the product and, you know, convincing them why they should carry the product. And so we usually do that. Once we get it in the shop, we do a bit of promotion to really build some awareness. And then it's just about the, the servicing and really trying to ensure that the customers in their shop really know the product. Because, you know, there's always going to be new customers that you could potentially target. And right. so it's, it's about growing the ex- that customer base within each shop. But there's so many more shops that we still haven't penetrated. So there's still a lot more to be done. I think we, we're in very strategic places, but we want to go a bit deeper and get into some of the, the sort of the smaller retail shops just right. so that we can have broader access. Sure. So, so our customers sure. can have broader access. Mm-hmm. Okay, got it. And so here's a question in terms of how you... So in your particular product, so since I first tried your product, then going back to the U.S. and saying, I love coconut chips now, can I, how can I get them? And even in comparison, I tell people, everyone is like, these are better than any that I've tasted from Thailand, from anywhere else, even other brands in Ghana. So in terms of looking at, because now I think there are a few more brands in Ghana, how do you manage the competition? Like dealing with like, how do you keep differentiating yourself and innovating to, I mean, it's early on, but how do you see yourself continuing to do that? Yeah. So for us, one, we spent a lot of time. I spent a lot of time in developing a great product mm-hmm. and I know what a great product tastes like because I am someone who really loves great products. So I really spent a lot of time in making sure the product is great in terms of maybe people coming in and, and trying to potentially replicate it. I still stand on my product because I know, you know, regardless of if there is a competition, this mine will, will still be differentiated, sure. but you still need to continue to add things to it. So right now what we're working on is um, adding new products. So we have to add different varieties of the coconut chips. And then we also now need to expand into other product categories. So we'll still do snacks, but then it would be a different type of snack. Maybe it's a snack bar or a cookie mm-hmm. or the like. So I don't see it as we're just coconut chips or, you know, coconuts of Africa. It's snacks of Africa. So for us, we will evolve into a sort of a bona fide snack brand with Mm -hmm. various snacks and products and food products Mm -hmm. under the umbrella company. Oh, okay. Wonderful. So do you have any, like, can you you leak us any information on what the next one looks like? Um, not yet, but I will, I will post it. We won't leak any information, but when we get closer to that date, we will share that with you. Wonderful. wonderful. (laughs) But we are, what I will say is that for the coconut chips, we are going to introduce other varieties. You know, you've tried our unsweetened one. We want to do a fruit and nut mix Ah. for the, the coconut chips. And then maybe one additional variety of the coconut chips and then we'll start with other products. Okay. Okay. So that's good to know. So we'll be looking more for more scrumptious snacks coming up soon. So, um, coming your way. Exactly. So with that in mind and mindset, this is my mindset hack section of our conversation. And this is where I ask my guests what your favorite or innovative mindset hack 
is, and this is one that you can imagine, one that you know of, or one that you already practice? Um, I think for me, the thing that I practice that really, that really helps me is meditation, Mm. meditation and breathing. Mm. So if I have nerves or if I'm feeling a bit, you know, stressed, Mm -hmm. then I find that when I really sort of take deep breaths, you know, multiple times, I can easily calm myself down and bring, bring myself back to, you know, the matter, Mm -hmm. bring myself back to really what's in, what's in front of me. Uh, and then meditation, meditation is helpful because it just makes me feel like I'm starting my day off. Right. It makes me feel like I'm starting with control of my day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I usually that in the morning and I set a time, I do it for about, mm, I've started doing it for 30 minutes now, but yeah. So that's what I do. Meditation, breathing exercise, and then journaling. Journaling helps me just kind of clear my thoughts and get everything out uh, because sometimes I can get distracted by my thoughts. So I find that when I journal at the end of the day, it kind of clears everything out so that I can stay focused. Okay. So I wouldn't call those hacks, but those are my practices that really help me get through the day. Sure. It's like your mindfulness set, basically. So you're you're putting it all together. Interesting. Right. What are your hacks? Oh, mine are similar, actually. But one of them is oh, definitely the breath work and definitely meditation. Those are in my, my practice all the time. But I want to say now it's walking. So basically it's getting out and really just looking, walking and seeing the sky. So walking and looking at the nature, just walking, like, because that I'm typically a runner, but I recently, in the last like six months, have had to slow it down because of a little bit of you know misalignment issues that I need to focus on strengthening my muscles around. So mm-hmm. I've been walking, and the walks, you know, if, if I take my same route that I run, the walk is like an hour and a half walk, which is is fine because I actually can take in everything that's around. So mm-hmm. the people around that would see me running by now see me walking by and they kind of engage a little bit more. So I'd say, yeah, what my beyond those, like my most recent one is, is walking because it helps me connect. I mean, not when so, the engagement I'm talking about now, especially in this age of Corona is just like a nice wave, you know, that kind of thing, not really conversation, but yeah, I would say that's, that's my, no one's ever asked me mine. So that's, that's nice. If you <laughs> inquire. <laughs> yeah. I was just curious, but you know, one thing I also do, which you made me think of when you talked about walking, I have like a little garden ah, yeah. and I just, I honestly love my plants. So yes. caring for my plants, it does bring me a lot of joy. That too. I can agree. Before, that. before this interview that was out in the garden. So yeah, I think nature is just a mindset hack. Like when we can really just, yeah, it is. yeah, yeah. Just reset your whole psyche around a lot of things. It, it, it does. It does. And there's a lot you can learn from, from nature. So just being with, you know. Yeah, the stillness. It, it. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so it's interesting um, just going down that road a little bit more is because I've been reading these science fiction books and just different books about stuff generally. And we're so urban for the most part, our globe is, that we couldn't, wouldn't be able to survive. And one of my most, my guests earlier in this year, they bought land in upstate New York. And basically they spent a full year going there every weekend and learning the land and having to learn plants and learn those things. And that's like, 
we need to do that. We need to understand what this plant means. We need to understand what this animal does. We need to be not terminating all of our insects, but actually kind of figuring out what they do and why they're important. You know, we have malaria problems because we get rid of all the lizards or we get rid of all the things that eat mosquitoes. So, so we really have to kind of get a greater sense of the ecosystems that have been around before us and will be around after us so that we can all just really coexist. Yeah, you know what? It's very true. And I, you're, you're right. We've stepped away from that. And we don't realize that we're doing more harm <laughs> than good. Yeah. Uh, I remember yeah. I went to a tomato farm. I went to, um, I think I was in Germany. And there was a tomato farm and they had the best tomatoes I've had. Mm-hmm. And everything was very natural and organic. And there were so many bees. There. And I thought, well, why are there so many bees? And, and I learned that the bees were critical to the ecosystem that the tomatoes uh, grew in. Right. And it, it was so interesting to me because, again, I'm a city girl. So this is not even something that that, that I think about that, that crosses my mind. And it was the first time that I realized, wow, there's, there are so many smaller and larger ecosystems that we're just completely oblivious to. And because we don't know anything about it, we don't realize the impact of some of our actions. Right. So it was an interesting reality when he told me that it's very interesting and you know we have a bee problem a global bee shortage is coming so we probably should really be a lot more mindful of all these things so yeah so that brings me to a question about your sourcing and really because you know we talked a lot about the high level business but you run a factory and you have employees so how is it you know in terms of managing your suppliers and your employees and really making sure that it's a well-oiled, well-functioning factory? Because you're the first factory owner or operator that's been on the show. So tell us a little bit more about factory life. Oh, okay. Well, it's it's challenging, right? It's challenging mm-hmm. because there's so many moving parts to it mm-hmm. that need to be managed and, and managed well. So for instance, production is its own beast on its own yeah. and making sure that we work with youth, right? So, you know, we have a lot of young people who are on sort of the, the factory floor. And so really making sure that there is discipline in how the production is done mm-hmm. is important because we are big on the consistency of the product and we're also big on food safety. Yeah. Uh, especially because yes. it's like an international product. And I, I, you know, for me, I really want to make sure that, you know, anyone who tries my product on any, continent in any country or any supermarket shelf feels like it's a quality product. So there's a lot that goes into that aspect, which I think in the past I hadn't anticipated, right? So there's a whole system, food safety management and the like that we need to be mindful of. So there's a whole team on that. And then for the sourcing, sourcing, luckily we have some pretty reliable suppliers, but initially it took a while to really find the right ones. Mm. So we have uh, certain suppliers that we, we source source from. Mm-hmm. So we haven't had any challenges uh, sourcing from our farmers for the coconut because we, we really only deal with one main crop. And then then there's these sort of the sales and the marketing sort of aspect of the product. And I think it becomes a bit challenging and overwhelming because, you know, nowadays there are a lot of products or brands that are out there, especially let's say in the U.S., where production is outsourced. So that's not even something that they really have to concern themselves with. It's really just they focus more on the marketing, which I think is great because you really get to to really build the brand 
probably at a much faster pace than someone who's spending time on the production. Not that one is better than the other, but it's just two different ways of, of handling it. And I think for us, it, it's taking time to really just balance it all and find the right people to handle certain things, you know, so that I'm not spending so much time on each of the different areas, but rather kind of leading and pushing the strategy and the vision forward. And so I think when I started, I spent a lot of time, like, you know, I was a lot of time in production, spending so much time in production that we didn't really get to do any more, any marketing really. Now we're starting to get more into sort of the product differentiation and get more into the marketing. But then now there's administrative items that we need to really start to focus on, right? So hiring an accountant, hiring an admin to, to help with those items. So it's a balancing act, I would say. It's a balancing act and it's just a, a lot of moving pieces, which I love. I do enjoy that part of it. But it's important to really make sure that you have a system in place to balance it. For our coconuts, we do have reliable suppliers for the coconut, but there is always the need to add more. So right now we're looking for additional suppliers to have as a, as a backup, because, you know, in some cases when we're in the lean season, you know, there might be a shortage. So it's important to have different reliable sources, but overall Mm -hmm. it hasn't been so difficult. We usually work through associations or cooperatives, which allow us to get access to many different farmers or even to larger, smaller amounts and larger scale farmers. So we don't have any so much of an issue on the sourcing at the moment. Although for us, long term, we would eventually want to sort of take more control of the raw material and potentially start our own uh, farm it's just to, to secure right. our supply mm-hmm. as we yeah, grow. Yeah, that's a good idea. I don't think I ever told you, but coconut farming was one of my, like, I'm coming to Ghana to do. And so I've done really? a bit of research. Yeah, I did a bit of research on coconut, like where they grow the whole coconut disease that had ravaged coconuts for a while and mm-hmm. more. And just really trying to figure out like where, which regions have the best, have the most and and how I could quickly be a coconut cultivator. So, so yeah, maybe we can partner well, you know, on that. Quickly is not something that would ever work in Ghana for work at all for coconut because they take I a know, while to before you can get your first harvest. It's, you're looking at four years at least. Exactly. <laughs> is that why you decided not to do it? Yeah, well, yeah, that yeah that and to get that harvest in four years, you need to plant a lot of coconuts. Yeah, you do. So yeah, you have to yeah, do that scale. Yeah, exactly. So I have land. So that's just one of one of the things I'm I'm considering for that. And we'll soon see. Well, we need to talk because I am very interested in doing this. So let's talk offline. Okay. About okay. it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'd love to. Um, where, where is your farm, actually? So my farm is. Yeah, my, my land is. Well, it's a farm now. It's a palm forest. So it's palm forest. We have some coconut. We have some mango. Okay. We have, you know, just basically what what was there when we got it. And it's in the region where there's a bunch of pineapples. So it's between Pokwasi and Mm -hmm. Katwa. So it's my dad's village. It's called Kodreshong. But so it's like the Gaon West type of area. Gaon West, like north. So, yeah. So it's about 10 acres. It's not hectares, which not. But I also have another friend who I'll have on the show sometime soon in the Dodawa area. She has hundreds of acres so that's really something she's like, yeah she's like come plant i don't care so 
So like it's okay. yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, let's definitely talk offline and and, and yeah. strategize. Yeah, yeah, sounds good. Let's do that. Right. Okay. So Stacey, this has been such a wonderful, insightful conversation. I love getting into like the works. Like, Are we that's, done that's, already? That's, that's, I don't want to take all your time. You know, we, you're a working woman, you know? I mean, I could, we could talk the whole evening. So, but you know, I don't want to cut into the beginning of the work week and all that stuff. So do you have any other thoughts that you want to share about the whole process and what you're going through? I would just say that it is a challenging, but very rewarding experience. And I know anyone who has started a business knows this. And I think what I'm learning now is that it's like having a baby. So it's like, Mm -hmm. you know, how how mothers, I'm not a mom, but from the moms that I know, how much Mm -hmm. having a child challenges you and matures you and grows you and helps you see certain things about yourself that maybe you weren't aware of. I think Mm -hmm. having a business is like having a baby. And so it's, 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 it's a, it's a great thing. It's a challenging thing, but it's a wonderful thing. And I would really encourage people to really, because I know your podcast is about global citizens and people making, you know, homes all across the world. I would really encourage people to really start to think about, you know, especially if there's an interest on the continent, the African continent, they can make an impact here on the continent and it's not going to be easy, but it would be worth it over the long yeah. term, you know, yeah. you know, if it's something that you're passionate about, it would be worth right. it. Right. Of course. So I, I wanted to just take a size up because it sounds like you have a little bit more time. How are you adapting <laughs> in I didn't COVID. say that, Flores. I know. Because what you're saying about it is that kind of work. And I fully agree. Like when you come in to be an entrepreneur, you are all hands on deck for that. But now thinking about where we're now, you know, dealing with the COVID-19 era, how are you adapting? How has that impacted what you're doing, how you're doing it? What, what, what do you see for the business in this context now? Uh, I see, you know, we're, we're in food. So there's always going to be a need for, it's always going to be a product that would be consumed. It may not be at the same rates, you know, right mm-hmm. now, but eventually it will get back there. And what we're going mm-hmm. to start doing now is really spending a lot more and focusing more on the sort of the digital aspect. Because yeah. with, um, yeah. with food, even though there's a huge online retail space, which is growing, you know, most people still buy their food in the supermarkets. Exactly. They still, retail is still, you, can't, you know, the it is the experience, especially for someone who's in, who's a foodie or who's a cook, you know, the experience of going into a whole foods and getting to try different foods and looking at the different products that in itself is an experience. But I think COVID now is going to force people to be sort of more efficient with their time or move people towards that way. Not necessarily force that, but I think people are now thinking about what are they spending their time on? As you think about that, there's probably going to be more of a shift to online even more than we've seen. So we're going to make sure we're right sort of in the midst right. of that. I'm still going to do food, still into it, but uh, we're just going to sort of revise the sort of distribution strategy a bit or diversify it. Got it. Got it. Smart money. So last question, just mm-hmm. kind of getting into the head of Miss Enyam. What are you reading these days? Right now I, I'm reading... The autobiography of Benjamin Franklin. Oh, from, okay. 
Yeah, I'm switching. And between that and I just started looking into um, Robert Greene's The Laws of Human Nature. Okay. So what's the juxtaposition on both of those stories as you read them concurrently? Well, the autobiography of uh, Benjamin Franklin is obviously his autobiography, but it's great to really get into. He was very um, thoughtful and very meticulous, and he really shares a lot of lessons that he's learned, which I really appreciate because it's not necessarily like, why well, I did this, I did this, this. He's more like, this was my thought process. This is, these are the exercises that I did. This is how I built my discipline. This is the way I thought about things. And it's a letter to his son, mm-hmm. basically. He said he was writing there for the benefit of his son, which I, which I liked, you know? So I, I just like the approach. I like some of the learnings. I'm, I'm just into it. I'm about, let's say, quarter of the way through. But I, I appreciate okay. the insights. Okay. I really appreciate the insights. And then the laws mm-hmm. of human nature is, is more sort of broader. Uh, so this is into one man's mind, the insights of one man's mind. And then Robert Greene's book is more of a collective. So he just looks at certain characteristics and certain character traits and tries to explain that these are the potential characters that you might come into contact mm-hmm. with in your life. And this is this is how you might want to approach it in order to to avoid the pitfalls of certain relationships. Mm, Wow. Very insightful. Good read. Those will be in our show notes too. Just (laughs) dead. All right. Well, thank you for joining us today. This was great. I had so much fun. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So folks, that's all for this week with local citizen, Stacey and Yam of Snacks of Africa. As always, you can catch us every Tuesday dropping a new podcast at localcitizenspod.com or wherever you get your podcasts. That includes Apple, that includes Google, that includes so many more. Please subscribe. Please comment. Please follow Snacks of Africa on Instagram, Facebook, on their website. Buy snacks if you're in Accra. And until next time, folks. Bye for now.